0: Seems like it's been short, seems like it's been long, but we've been at this for a while. And just to let you know that we are literally in the last couple chapters of the book of Acts. And, um, I was, as I was studying this week and thinking about the Apostle Paul and how much time we've spent with this man over the last few months, I'm gonna miss him. I mean, I'm gonna, I know he's not going anywhere. I know, and I know where he is. I know, and I can always read the book of Acts, but I'm gonna miss, um, this time together that we get to share talking about how God, um, how God collided with this man, Saul, transformed him by the gospel into Paul and has literally turned the world upside down through his life and through his mission and through the message that God had given him. So, I feel compelled in this last act to do a little bit of review just to bring people up to speed and to let us know. And I'm actually going to spoil for you the last couple chapters um, of what's going to happen, but they're already in your Bible, so maybe you've already spoiled it for yourself. But um, we got Paul is converted, and he spends three years in the desert in Arabia. He visits the very scared. Christians, Peter and James in Jerusalem, because I know what Paul has been doing. He's been murdering Christians, fighting against um, the way that uh, he is now a part of. He spends eight years in Syria and Cilicia, and he spends a year in Antioch. He does his first missionary journey with Barnabas, which we read about, um, gosh, that was probably nine months ago. Um, Then he spends a year and a half in Antioch, and then he goes on a second missionary journey where he takes a larger swath of the Mediterranean. He takes his journey with Silas, and if you remember, he went to the town of Philippi where we saw Lydia, a businesswoman, converted, where we saw a slave girl um, met Jesus through the Apostle Paul, and then we saw the conversion of the Philippian jailer. We see how God's word applies to everyone in every situation. Then he spends a year and a half in Corinth, and then goes on a third missionary journey and last week, we pretty much ended with the third missionary journey of Paul in Jerusalem, bringing an offering to the saints, having collected this offering for four or five years um, from all the Gentile churches around the Mediterranean and um, Asia Minor, bringing it to Jerusalem. He knows that God has called him to Jerusalem to bring it. Then, we, as last week, we, we, we read that he was then arrested. And little did he know that he's going to spend the next five years in jail. He's going to spend the next five years of his life in custody, chained to a soldier, chained to a cell, not, no longer free as he once was. And then we know that he does get to Rome, where he does spend a couple years in confinement. And then, we don't know about this, it's is outside the scope of Acts, then he is released we, we can assume that he got to Spain. He was right about Rome. He was right about Jerusalem. We can assume that he was right about Spain where he was headed. And then we know that he gets, that he gets imprisoned again. And then that's when he writes his last book, 2 Timothy, to his young disciple. And we know that, and he knows that his life is about to end. So that's, that's Paul's story. And I'm, we're, we're going to jump in where rave ended last week and the point of today just so you can make some notes and be a little organized in my thoughts here um, this isn't going to be chronologically what i'm going to say but these are the categories of things i'm going to say today we're going to look at who paul was as a man how god had prepared him personally with his background and his his personality and his experience then we're going to look at paul's mission How God uniquely prepared this man for the unique mission that God had given him. And then we're going to look at Paul's message, how Paul, the man and his mission, crafted his unique message in the way that he would present the Word of God to others. So I pray this is going to be encouragement for us this morning as as we look at the man, the mission, and his message. So we know that he gets to Rome, but how he gets there is absolutely thrilling. And we're going to spend the next four or five weeks talking about how he gets from Jerusalem to Rome. So the story again, he's been chased by Jews all over the place, um, his, I mean, literally for the last few decades. However, this time, he does not escape. He makes a, I believe, rightly motivated effort to conform to some Jewish laws in an effort to undo the Jewish Christians' anger at him for teaching Jews that they, do no, they no longer have to obey the law There's this fervor in Jerusalem when Paul gets there, and he's walking into a hornet's nest. And God had told him by the Spirit that this is going to happen. And so he basically gets gets mobbed on the temple. A Roman official saves Paul from the mob, from the angry Jews that are trying to quiet this man who is undoing their Judaism, undoing the, the things that they have tried for so long to protect about their nation. Paul is undoing that through the gospel, and they're angry. So anyway, the Roman official saves Paul from this mob, and pretending to do justice, he pretends to do justice here, but really he's just trying to save himself. This is an important subplot for for all the next Roman leaders that we're going to see. They want so much to keep the Jewish nation at peace. And so we, we find a lot of times that the Jews are able to manipulate these rulers in a lot of ways that our kids try to manipulate us. You know, somehow our kids get this idea that if they throw a big enough tantrum, make a big enough fuss, that they can get what they want from us. All right? Are your kids not like that too? I mean, am I the only bad parent in here? Um so our kids know this. And so the Jews employ this very thing. Every time they don't get what they want from a Roman ruler, they start a riot. They start a fuss. And so the Roman rulers from, from, are basically judged on how well they can keep the peace. And so basically they are stuck between doing Roman justice and keeping Jewish peace. And so a lot of times they will simply do things for their own benefit, neither for justice nor for peace, but to save their, own, to save their jobs. So it's an important thing to know as, as we continue. Um, so, so Paul is then tortured but not yet he is stretched to be flogged but he says are you going to beat a Roman citizen without a trial and without being condemned and so we, so again the, the, the governor Lysias there is not sure what to do he's just he's just chained up Paul and he's not sure what's going to happen next but that's when the Lord does know what's going to happen next and speaks this word to Paul in the night. He says, the following night, this is Acts 23, verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified about the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. So now we know that Paul is not, Jerusalem is not going to be the end. He actually is going to go to Rome, and the Lord is standing by him. So, Lysias, this confused governor, is not sure what to do with Paul. So what he does is that, he, while he's trying to make a decision about what to do, he finds out that there's actually, a, there's actually an assassination plot against Paul's life. And so, the ne- in, the, in the middle of the night, the next day, he sends Paul to the next governor over. The guy who actually ruled the entire region, Felix, sends him to Caesarea under the guard of 500 soldiers. Think about this. Apostle Paul is sent... Basically, two, out, two Caesarea out of the control of the Jews with 500 soldiers. And so now he is in Caesarea waiting trial from Felix, the governor. Not Felix the cat. Felix the governor who hears his case. Now, the Jews follow him, and they bring a high, basically a high-priced ambulance-chasing personal injury lawyer with them to plead their case against Paul before Felix the governor. Their claim is that Paul is trying to profane the temple, and to bring Gentiles into it. Basically, their claim is that Paul's been the one that's been starting all these riots. However, Paul is in a—I mean, usually, you do not want to defend yourself in court, right? He who defends himself has a fool for his client, all right? So, we see here that Paul is somehow able, with all his wisdom, his ability to communicate, to defend himself very ably in front of Felix, To the point where he proves pretty well that it's not him that's starting the riots, it's the Jews that are starting the riots, and that he's innocent of all his charges. So, one of the points that Paul makes in this is that he is the one that's being faithful to the Jewish traditions. He is the one that is basically standing up for the hope of Israel, which is ultimately the resurrection of the dead. So he convinces Felix of this. Now, Felix, we know, is actually very, actually understands something about the gospel. He's heard of Jesus and knows something about this, the way that Paul now re- represents. So he basically says, I want to hear this man more. And it's really from mixed motives that he wants to hear Paul more. And we'll see how that pl- plays out. And, that's, and this is the section, the story that we're going to spend most of our time with today. But just to give you where this fits, Felix is going to keep Paul in custody for two years in Caesarea. So we see that Paul does not receive justice, but God sovereignly sits him in jail in the town of Caesarea. In a couple years, Felix gets removed for mishandling matters. And, and this will be important for the story that we'll get to. Felix is known as a ruthless, ruthless leader. Um, he was known for being violent. He was known for putting people to death on a whim. He was very, he was just a ruthless guy and will keep the peace at all costs. He was so violent, in fact, that he is removed eventually for being too harsh with his constituents. And he's removed by the emperor Nero. Okay. Nero, if you know your church history, is one of the most violent, evil Caesars that Rome ever had. He could go down history, like with Hitler, Mussolini, all those guys, as one of the worst, craziest leaders. And this guy, Felix, is too much for him. Okay, So just put that in perspective of who this guy, Felix, is known to be. But he gets removed, and there's a new governor, Festus, who wants to suck up to the Jewish constituents as well. And so he, he wants to keep Paul in prison. He tries to move Paul back to Jerusalem to try him there, knowing that this will make the Jews very happy. But Paul does one thing that seals his fate and says, I am here in, under a Roman court. I am going to appeal to Caesar There's no reason for you to send me back to Jerusalem. And this moment of wisdom, or he could have thought it was a mistake later on. But we see that Paul's statement appealing to Caesar secures the fact that he will then eventually be escorted in Roman custody all the way across the Mediterranean Sea under movie-worthy drama and suspense to Rome in six months. There he's put on house arrest. And there the story Will continue. So, so, this is where our story today is. It's him dealing with Felix. Now, some things that I want to observe here about Paul, the man. Just in this big story, keep, keep the whole story of Paul in your minds. Ananias said to him way back in um, earlier in Acts, he said, About Paul, he said, The Lord said to Ananias, Go. Go and help Paul. Explain to Paul what has happened to him in his blindness. Okay, Paul has just been knocked off his horse. He's blind. He's waking up from being born again. And he says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, Paul is a chosen instrument of God. And we see that he's chosen in two ways. Not only is he just literally apprehended violently by God, and his will is conformed in an an instant. But we see that he's also uniquely prepared for the mission that God had given him. See, the the reality is that Paul is given a mission. Once he finds himself in the Lord, Paul does not go, now what am I supposed to do with my life? Paul doesn't go, now how can I continue to fulfill my will for my life, and how can I fit God into it? He is literally born again to God, and then God literally picks this man up and puts him right in the middle of God's mission for the gospel and God's hope for for the world. It's very important for us. It's very instructive for us. Here we go. I need the common grace of water, if anybody could grab some for me. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks, man. So we see that God has a rescue mission for the world, and he puts Paul right in the middle of it. Now, when we start with us, and we take our lives, and we try to cram God into our desires, we will never get it right, ever. And this is one of the things that we see throughout the whole book of Acts. Everybody is getting their mission wrong. We see Saul. Saul thinks that he is doing God's will by persecuting the church. Okay. We see that throughout this story, in this passage I haven't read, but we see that there's 40 guys that take a vow toward God to kill the man that God is now sending to the world. Okay? We, we see throughout this whole book that people are getting their mission wrong. And then there's another assassination attempt on, on, on Paul's life, where, where people are like, we are doing the will of God by ending this man's life. Nothing could be farther from, from the truth. See, how is it much different for you and I when we begin with our, with our self-interest and our desires, and yet we try to fit God into that? See, what, what ends up happening is that God then becomes a servant to what we want and what we want to see happen. Now, there's certain things that, that, that flesh this out for us, that cause us to know whether we are trying to fit God into our mission or that God we have found ourselves in God's mission for us. is this next statement that's made about Paul. It says, he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, it's the suffering that comes along with God's mission that sorts us out to see if it really is about us, if this life that we're living really is, is about us, then we will try to avoid suffering. And we'll get really confused and depressed and discouraged when we run into it. And we can fall into this trap of like, I would call salvation by discernment. A lot of times we will, we will, we will be going along and something horrible happens to us, something difficult happens to us, and we think, I must have taken a wrong turn. I must have not discerned the will of God. I must not be in the right place. And then we throw everything up in the air and be like, okay, how can I get back to being God's perfect will? Because God's perfect will is my will. And if I get this thing right, then I won't suffer. It's very important that we learn from our our friend friend Paul that suffering is a part of being in the middle of God's plan. See, God's plan is not to make much of us, but make much of himself. And to cause us to be really, really happy with Him, and to that end, one of the means to that end is oftentimes discouragement, our struggle, and our suffering. Now, even when we know God's will, oftentimes we don't know how it's going to happen. Okay, listen. listen to Paul. Here is Romans fifteen, chapter uh, Romans chapter fifteen, verse thirty. He writes this one about one year before. He is in Jerusalem and in Caesarea. He, he writes this. He says, pray for me. This is his letter to the church in Rome. He says, pray for me that I, may deliver, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and to be refreshed in your company. See, he knows he's going to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to Rome. And regardless of the church misinterpreting prophecy, like, like Robert said a few, a few weeks ago, meaning that shouldn't you go to Jerusalem, he knows, what, he knows what awaits him. He has this sense that he's going to Rome, but he has no idea that he's going to go to Rome in chains. He has no idea that God's plans for him is to go to Rome under armed guard, with little freedom, being constrained by the Roman officials. To be literally under the thumb of all the leaders in the region. A pawn between keeping Roman justice and Jewish peace. So we see that we often don't know how God is going to accomplish. That's one. One more and I get the hand held. Um, so the big question is, what? whose life is it anyway? I mean, honestly. Our life, whose life are we living anyway? I encourage you to think about your life. I certainly have been. I turned 40 two weeks ago. I know that may not seem a big deal to you, but seeing four at the beginning of my age is causing me to give pause. Um, I mean, it really is halftime for me. You know, as you think about it, the band has taken the field. I'm in the locker room. I mean, I'm at the top of the Ferris wheel. I am, I'm looking down at the rest of my life. <laughs> all right? Um, <clears throat> the view is very high from up here. You get a really good perspective. Um, but honestly, it, it, it's been difficult for me. Um, I've buried all my grandparents. I will bury my parents in 15, 20 years. Then I'll be next. And the reality that life is now slipping through my fingers in a very fast way. Um, it's actually been a little discouraging. I'm actually trying to work through this, um, and I'll work through it right now with you, that's all right. Um, you know, I may never have any more kids. I may never leave Richmond. I'm realizing there's certain things that due to how old I will not get to do. I, I will never be president. I will never be a professional soccer player. There's all kinds of things that I dreamed about doing that I know. I know. I just realized that. You know, and what's hit me, I will probably never drive a cool car. I will be driving used cars for the rest of my life. I mean, and even in my midlife crisis that I'm having, I mean, I may paint my van red, okay? I may paint the minivan red, but that's probably as far as I'll get. Um, but honestly, I mean my depression over this and my, and my dealing with this i tell you what, what it's revealed to me it's revealed to me of how much of my life and the mission that I think I'm, I've been on it really is about me I really am dealing with the fact that I have tried to put God in the middle of my agenda and now I'm realizing that my life does not belong to God as much as I had hoped and that my discouragement and my, and my un, being unsettled by so much of my life passing is really because it's really been about me. So God is using this man, Paul, and the way that, that his life was literally ruined by God for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of God's ends. And you see how this man... This man literally, he goes from, 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 from place to place to place with his life literally being turned upside down. He is beaten. We'll find out he is shipwrecked. We will find out that he suffers again and again and again. But he realizes, like he said in Acts chapter 20, that I, I do not care about my life, but only that I might fulfill the very thing that God apprehended me for. Seeing Paul live this way is actually really helping me um, I'm looking at his tenacity, I'm looking at his resoluteness, his joy in suffering, his care for people when he's got everything to lose. It's all been very, very encouraging for me. Um, <clears throat> and at the top of this Ferris wheel, I've been thinking about my life and some of the mistakes that I feel like I've made. I mean, what about these mistakes, honestly? And for you, I'll bet you if you, if you took a step back and thought about the things that you would, have do, that you would do differently if you had a, another shot at it, there are moments here where I know Paul is probably thinking the same thing. He spends two years <clears throat> in jail, in Caesarea. Okay? This is a man who doesn't stay anywhere for long. And wherever he goes, stuff is happening. He is writing books. He's writing letters. He is preaching. He's running. He's planning churches. He's training leaders. I mean, this guy is on the move He's been completely on the move for about 20 years now. And then he's stuck in a jail in Caesarea with only one person to preach to. And that person's guy's name is Felix, okay? He's got nothing to do. He doesn't write any books of the Bible. He doesn't write any letters from this place. And I know he's saying, oh, my gosh, what am I doing here? Now, I know in the, in the quick reading of this, it's hard for us, but two years of nothing. That was just a half of one, all right? I got one more. Um, and then think about Agrippa's statement at the end. And if you go back and read this, you'll see this. He says that once, once Paul explains his testimony, what's happened to him, and what he preaches, Agrippa along with every other Roman leader, says, this man's innocent. And it says to him, this guy could have gone free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And I'm, I know that got back to Paul. And he's going, oh! You know, if I just held back, if I just held on a little longer, if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't still be in these chains. So I know Paul's going back, What about these mistakes? But yet you see how God has used everything in our lives to get his will done. I mean, how many times have you thought that you've ruined your place in God's mission? I mean, it's only me that kind of wakes up in the middle of the night with somewhat fearful tremors and thinking about, I mean, gosh. I mean, can I really do this? Am I really am I really really capable? of doing God's will? Am I really capable of leading others? Am I really capable of being a good dad and being a good parent and all those things? And I mean, I've, just, I, I've, I've just made too many mistakes. I mean, I'm, I know this is like the last. I know God is going to be like, all right, you have, you have done it for the last time. We see how Paul, through his mistakes, God uses all of them to get him to Rome Young folks here, and I can say young folks to a lot of people here now. Um, you have not yet begun to make mistakes. <laughs> you will think you have disqualified yourselves over and over and over again. You think that in your life you have nothing but potential ahead of you. <laughs> uh, you do have a lot of potential um, for good and for bad. Um, old folks. I say that in the most honorable way. Your failures have not disqualified you either. They've prepared you. Your sin, while we would never condone it, has prepared you to love the gospel. Think about everything that you would do differently now. Everything that you have done wrong. Every time that you decided against God and your desires were over and against him. God has prepared you to love His gospel even more. With every mistake, with everything you've done wrong, with everything that you wish you would have done better. All right, how's that? Is behind here. okay. They've prepared you. How else would we know that the excellency of the power is of God and not of us unless we realize that we are earthen vessels and that God puts his treasure, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, in earthen vessels. He shines brightest in those folks that know they're earthen, that know they're broken that know they're made of the earth and have no pretense about their righteousness being their own. This is one of the great things we see about the man Paul. So some observations about his, his mission. Again, we see that, that God has uniquely prepared this man who is a Roman citizen, who is also of Jewish education. This guy knew his Bible. This guy was a scholar this guy knew everything there is to know about Judaism, but yet he also spoke Greek. He also spoke the language of the day. This man was uniquely prepared in his background and his upbringing to get the gospel to Rome. And guys, we we'll just take a step back here. Why, why does the gospel need to get to Rome anyway? What is the big deal about this city? Guys, it is the center of the known world. It is where everything influence, everything influencing comes out of. This, in this we see about Paul's tenacity and we see God's commitment to get this man to Rome is really about God's love for the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And God so loved the world that He sent His servant Paul uniquely crafted with Roman citizenship, Jewish, Jewish education, and Greek language to get this man to Rome where his influence through the Gospel could be spread in ways he could never Never spread it on the back side of the Roman Empire um, back in Judea. So think about this. One way that you can read this, it would be like, well, my life won't amount to much unless I am an apostle. <laughs> unless I can get to the largest city. If I can influence thousands of people through my teaching and through my ministry or through what I do. That is not the right way to read this. We're not reading our Bibles well, if that's that's how we feel in reading about Paul's story. What we see is that God has created each one of us for a unique spot in God's mission. Think about your education, your upbringing. Now, you may not like it. (laughs) You may sit around this room and compare yourselves to others and literally feel like you have nothing to give feel like that 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 compared to others here compared to their looks compared to their abilities compared to their education it's very easy to look around this room and wish you had the same preparation that others did but we see here that God made Paul to be Paul so that he could speak to Jews and Gentiles and rulers and ultimately the Caesar of Rome he also made you he also made me that we would work where we work that we would live where we live, that we would have the amount of education that we do. Because there are, there are people that need Jesus that only we can know. Think of all the options. Think of all the places that you could have lived. Think of all the schools that you could have gone to. Think of all the times in which you could have been born. You had nothing to do with any of that. And there are so many different things that you could be doing right now, but you're here. Knowing the people that you know. Living in the neighborhood that you live in. God has uniquely set you there. Do not for one moment think that you are outside of God's mission. That you are outside of something important and spectacular. God has sovereignly created you, prepared you, and put you right where you are. He is bigger than your mistakes. He's bigger than your sin. He's bigger than your decisions. He has placed you He's placed you with the knowledge of God to talk to the people that you talk to, to know the people that you know. Think about how God's made you unique. You may not think about this, but, but think about it. You are a unique person. All right, when I think about myself, okay, five daughters, right? I have to keep telling myself this is not a joke. This is not... This is, this is not... I'm um, payback for something, <laughs> you know. That this is actually God's blessing for me, and somehow He's preparing my soul. I mean, you—you. You, I mean, I've never parented a, a boy, but I'm imagining you have to speak to them and deal with them a little bit differently than you do girls. Um, and I'm learning to be sensitive and all those great things. And there's God's going to use that somehow. God help me. Um, <laughs> But guys, also about God's mission, it's, it's, it's often so hidden. I mean, think about this. I mean, as, I mean, in, in, in one sense, Paul is being traipsed all over the Mediterranean to defend himself. Okay? To get himself out of trouble. To declare his innocence about he, he is not a writer. He is not an enemy of the public peace. Okay? He, it looks like he is on trial to person after person. And why does Luke include all this detail? It's like... Okay, here's another trial. Here's another defense. Okay, skip to the next page. Here's another trial. Here's another defense. I mean, it's like a record is on skip, you know? Do you all know what a record is? Sorry. I just totally lost that. Um, okay, sometimes a needle on a record skips and you hear the same thing over and over and over again. CDs don't do that. They just... Anyway. Um, you st- it's getting redundant in Luke. For Luke in Acts. But why is God showing us this? See... It looks like Paul is defending himself. But what's really happening? He's testifying about Jesus. You see, when he gets before all these folks, he, he is simply talking about himself, what happened to him, a little what he knows about Jesus. And he's testifying to who Jesus is, his death, burial, and resurrection. See, what we do may look like we're running our kids to soccer practice. It may look like we are killing ourselves, raising our kids, getting an education, doing our jobs. But what is it really? It really is God giving you an audience, a place to testify about Him. Okay, your, your time in college is really not about you. It's for you to learn the gospel and to testify to others. That's, that's what happened to me, and my grade point average suffered because of that. But you know what? God is sovereign. You need to get better grades than I did. Um, Your job. We get so consumed with how much our jobs are there to provide for us. We're in our workplaces to testify about him. It isn't isn't about us. I think Luke is taking pains to show us that. That his trials are literally only a pretense set up by God for Paul to testify about Jesus. Now the message. Okay. The message that he gives to Felix. If we go to Acts chapter 24, verse 24, says this. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, and we're going to get back to these at the end, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity I will summon you. At the same time he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him and often conversed with him. So when 2 years had elapsed Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor Felix left Paul in prison. Now we know a couple things about Felix we've talked about him all already. He has been literally known as one of the most ruthless and heavy-handed leaders to rule over Judea. Now, what we also know about him is that he's pretty immoral as well. His wife, Drusilla, when she was 16 and married to someone else, Felix wooed her away from her husband and became Felix's third wife. Now, Drusilla, previously married, was 16 at the time. Now she's 19. Drusilla, though, is what we know from the text is Jewish. She comes from the Herodian family, which was basically one of the, one of the Jewish families in, that were basically Roman and Jewish. And they were very concerned about keeping up Jewish pretenses. So this, this woman, Drusilla, knows the Old Testament law. She knows what it means to be good. She knows what it means to, to obey the Ten Commandments or not. Felix, on, on the other hand, he's pretty immoral and would be a welcome guest on any Jerry Springer episode. So, Paul is talking to them. And we know that Drusilla, being Jewish, is working out her own conscience for what's happened. So, think about this, though. Paul's past experience prepares him to speak the gospel to them. Felix, a ruthless man, has mistreated and killed many in the name of the state to secure his own identity. Drusilla Jewish like we just said think about paul in relationship to both, both both of them his own sin has perfectly prepared him to speak to this couple paul in the name of god has blood on his hands as well think about it he was guilty of killing christians before he was converted he he knows what it means to be ruthless in the name of preserving his nation yet he also knows god's law and its requirements And he worked for years to be blameless. Had highly developed self-righteous conscience. So he's sitting there between someone who has blood on his hands and someone who knows the law. And Paul has experienced both. Think about this. He has also set Paul up to need the gospel so deeply. Paul knows because of his upbringing... That you cannot achieve righteousness through the law. He's tried. So he, he has literally ascended the heights of law obedience. And he knows that he's had to repent of that. He's also gone into the depths of despair over the gross sin of murder. This man has been prepared to love the gospel on so many levels. He has learned not just to repent of his evil things, but to, pretend, but to repent of his good things. So now he sits here before this couple, perfectly situated to explain the gospel to them. Now, let's look at Paul's message. We have talked about the man. We talked about his mission. Let's talk about his message. We see that, back to verse 24, it says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, and he sent for Paul, and they heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned, about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Let's not miss this. He's talking about judgment. He's talking about God's righteous judgment that will apply to everyone that's ever lived. Yet he's talking about this with the man who has the power of Paul's life in his hands. The fear of God Paul must have had to overcome a very understandable and more sane fear of man in that moment he is talking to this man about god's place about god about god's rulership about the fact that there will be a time where everyone will stand not before felix not before caesar but before god and felix is in that line just as well as paul is amazing what boldness Personally, I'd be trying to figure out how to get the heck out of there. And I would have done anything I could to make Felix think a lot of me. Okay? But in the end, that's not what Paul does. He preaches about God's righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Notice how personal Paul's message is. And it always is, and it always is through, through this whole story, how personal it is. He's literally talking about himself. And he, how simple it is. How simple it is. He doesn't go into all of the details around Felix's preconceived worldviews. He doesn't try to answer all of Felix's possible objections to the gospel. P- Felix would have, been, would have had a polytheistic worldview. He would have believed in all sorts of gods and, and he, would have, he would have believed in, in our, our need to go sacrifice to certain gods to get certain things in life. But Paul didn't talk about all of that. He, he he didn't try to dismantle or know ahead of time what Felix's objections were. He didn't. I mean, he didn't try to say. He didn't try to answer Paul's or Felix's questions. How could God be good and allow suffering? Or how do we really know that old Old Testament manuscripts are not corrupt? Or how can we know anything outside of the material world? He he isn't dealing with any of that. These are great questions, but know this, guys: that folks reject, and we reject. The gospel, not because of our difficulties with these questions. A rejection of God and the Bible and the good news about Jesus, it's not an intellectual one. It's always a moral one. That's why Paul just simply explained the gospel to them. Nietzsche said this. He said, he wrote that every philosophy, no matter how rational, is a justification of how we want to live our lives. Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World, wrote this, he said, The philosopher who rejects God and finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no reason why he should personally not do as he wants. So nobody rejects God because of their difficulty with the idea of revelation or with the idea of God being unknowable. They reject God because of what it would mean to believe in Him. See, to, to believe in Paul's message would mean a, a lot for Felix. It would mean that he would have to quit trying to justify himself before himself. He would, he would have to acknowledge what he has done. He would actually have to suffer the pain of working through the repentance and the remorse. And guys, it's, it's no different for us. When we get to the point of actually having, of being confronted with Jesus and confessing our sins, we... We hesitate, and we reject that because of the pain that it's going to cause us. It's so interesting here that Felix was looking at Paul for a bribe. He was looking at Paul to receive money. Yet Paul was offering him the riches of Christ. Isn't that something? Paul is explaining him the gospel, yet Felix can't see it. All he can see is the possibility for making a little money. He doesn't see the riches of Christ in the gospel. Now, let's look at what he said. Righteousness. What is righteousness? What is self-control? And what is judgment? We don't know much about this this conversation. We just have an outline. But if if you go back and look at Romans chapter 1, which he wrote just a year before this, this is basically his outline in the first chapter. we'll look at it briefly. The reality is that God made us to belong to him. And for us to get our meaning and worth and satisfaction and joy from him. Giving him glory, we give him glory as the most desirable thing in the universe. But see, Romans 1.25 says, We exchange this truth about God, that he's the greatest good we could ever experience. And we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. This makes us and Felix and Drusilla very unrighteous. We're guilty of cosmic treason and we don't have a right standing before him. Self-control. Paul goes on in the first chapter of Romans. He continues. He begins to explain that a heart that is set on pleasing itself outside of God is completely out of control. In this state, separated from God... Romans 1.28 says, We fail to acknowledge God and are given up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, there is no limit to what we will do to make ourselves happy. We have absolutely no self-control. Apart from God, we will do anything we can to be happy people. If Felix and Drusilla displayed this perfectly, they displayed no self-control at all. And my guess is that Paul would have gone on to explain, as he does, as as he will go on to explain in the book of Galatians in about two years from now, that he'll write, that this self-control cannot be worked up by our own power. He would explain that we are powerless to control our behavior. Our desires over and against God must be changed. Self-control can only be a fruit of the Spirit the only hope for Felix, the only hope for us is to be born again. We can't moderate our sin. Try, try as we might, we need an absolutely new birth. Now, again, he goes on. He doesn't stop there. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't just say, Felix, you're unrighteous. <laughs> he doesn't just say you need self-control and you have none. But he says there is a future coming judgment. Romans 2.5 says this. He says, "Those with hard and impenitent hearts are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. but, the, but for those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness." There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and the Greek, for God shows no partiality. As it is not any surprise that Felix would have left this conversation, as Luke records, as alarmed. That's how he reacts. No matter how much Felix and Drusillo could justify their behavior before any human court, like any of us, they could never stand in God's court as righteous. Paul would then say in Romans, there is no righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. It says that he reacted with alarm, but, ha- but, ha- but then we see how he really responded. Look at how he responds. We're told that he would dismiss Paul, and there's some in him when he would get an opportunity We're we're not told about Drusilla's reaction but we're told that Felix is afraid and visibly shaken yet he doesn't respond. But his no response really is a response. He's convicted of his lack of righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come that he's storing up wrath for himself. But guess what? He doesn't yield. He doesn't yield in this moment to the godly fear that Paul is speaking to him about. Now how about us? You knew we'd get to this. <laughs> how about us? How are we responding to these things? Will we hear, hear the truth? And like Felix. Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Will we hear the truth about how we've fallen short? How we have desired things over and against God. Will we hear? Will we hear that truth, and be alarmed, knowing that how this is an, an, an affront to God and His glory, and frustrates all that God created us to be? Will we hear the fact that 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 is storing up wrath in God's court against us, and will we will be alarmed at that, but put it off and continue to suppress the truth. And for those of us that are, in, that are in Christ, but are being confronted with our sin this morning, what is keeping us from responding with repentance? What is keeping us from coming to God once again to receive the forgiveness of sins, to be honest with what's happened and to be honest about what God has done, to be honest about where we fall short? Will we humble ourselves and receive this righteousness that comes through faith? See, later on, Paul would write this in Romans. This is where we'll end. He said, there's no distinction. All have, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Believer and unbeliever this morning. There's no good guys and bad guys in this room. There are no white hats and black hats. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But yet, through Christ, we've been justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Him whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood and to receive by faith. The reality is that Paul's message to Felix and Drusilla is the same message that Jesus brings to us. It's always the same. We're always needing to be saved. We're always being called to trust in him again. We're always being called to receive that grace of repentance and to know the forgiveness that comes through Christ and him alone. Let me pray for us as we prepare to take communion now. God, we think back to, to Paul's life and we're, we're struck by your goodness and your grace. God, I ask that right now in hearing these words that we would look back at our own lives and be overwhelmed with your mercy. And God, if we, but if we have not received your mercy yet this morning, I ask God that we would look at Paul's life and know that there is hope in Christ for us. That your goodness and your grace is bigger than our sin, bigger than our mistakes. And God, I ask for all of us this morning that, like Martin Luther said, that we would, we would continue to mature by always starting over. God, help us, tr- help us trust you again. In Jesus' name. Amen.